truly, it is better one day in the Lord's courts. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 84, which is actually the psalm where um, Jim and Liz's lyrics come from, Psalm 84. And after going through the first three psalms we looked at from book three of the psalms, which were laments and lament and mourning and pouring out one's heart to God really is the dominant theme in the third book of Psalms. We come across one of rejoicing, one of celebrating, loving, and longing for God, delighting to be with God. And so we will read it and learn from it. Psalm 84. Psalm 84. A psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Salah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Salah. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Lord God, it is our great joy and delight to draw near your throne. It is our great joy and delight to trust in you. So Lord, open our eyes to see hold wondrous things in your law. Give the increase from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 84, like I said, is a celebratory psalm. Many commentators, because of the middle section, take it to be a pilgrim song. Um, I don't think it is. I think the authorship lets us know what this is about. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And we don't need to turn there, but in the First Chronicles 26, 1 and following, one of the duties of the Korahites was they were gatekeepers at the temple. They were the janitorial staff, if you will. In fact, one of the commentaries I read called this a janitor's song. Um, this is the song of people who live day in and day out in God's temple. That's why the first stanza focuses on dwelling with God. This is a psalm of people rejoicing, delighting to be in God's temple. And, and then the second stanza, delighting in and, and praying for and extolling those who would make the pilgrimage. Um, so, so this is not a pilgrim song, although it does focus on the pilgrims. If you remember in Deuteronomy 16, 16, um, three times a year, um, the Lord commanded that all men in Israel would go to Jerusalem for the appointed feasts. In Deuteronomy 16, 16, it says, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. 
they shall not appear before the Lord God empty-handed. And so this notion of pilgrimage, something that we're not very familiar with in the New Covenant, was a regular and ongoing practice in Israel. Three times a year, all the men in Israel were heading to Jerusalem, at least. But this is written by the Korahites, the sons of Korah, who, who dwelt in the temple. And we get a clue from the psalm of a structural divide. Three times, blessed is, is extolled here. This sort of beatitude. You know, the beatitudes in Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Well, here, in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. In verse 12, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And so this threefold blessing is going to make our structural division. And, and again, blessed, blessing is kind of a Christian or religious term. Now, you don't usually speak of it outside of those circles. And so it might be worth talking for a moment about what does it mean, blessed. Um, it means, and if you want to fill in the blank there, it means overflowing joy. I'll just take a moment to read from a commentator speaking about this word. The word blessed, ashray, means an overflowing joy and full contentment in God, a satisfaction and happiness in the Lord. This noun occurs 44 times in the Old Testament, 25 of which are found in the Psalms. So over half of its occurrences are in the Psalms. The word happy is a good synonym, although it must be understood that this word conveys far more than feelings of settled peace and contentment. And also in this Psalm, the word occurs in the plural so an alternate translation might be the blessednesses of the one who dwells in your house. The blessednesses of those who strengthens in you. And the blessednesses, try saying that five times fast, the blessednesses. But, but the, the point we're getting at is superlative joy, superlative contentment, par excellence, if you will pinnacle joy and satisfaction. And so this psalm is going to tell us about three states or three conditions or three types of people who are blessed. Um, let's take a look at the first one. The blessednesses of dwelling. Of dwelling. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And so first we see a desire for and delight in God and his dwelling place. And that's the way the psalm opens up. It's just extolling. You can picture these temple workers, these gatekeepers, as they go about their duties, just delighting in the privilege they have of being there. And just as they're walking about doing what they do, extolling how lovely, how wonderful, how beautiful is your dwelling place, O Lord. And, and again, this is hard for us to identify with because there is no physical New Testament equivalent to the temple. Certainly this building is not the equivalent to the temple. Um, in fact, at the end of the, your notes here, we're going to deal with a little bit of translating this into the New Covenant. But for the Israelites, there was one location. Their religion was geocentric. Um, and, and the Lord chose Jerusalem and that was where the ark was. And sitting on the mercy seat of the ark was the localized glory presence of the Lord God. And so there was, in one sense, a, a geographic location, a street address, if you will, where God especially dwelt. Where God especially was, and if you wanted to draw near to the Lord, that was where you especially had to go. And all of this is, is different in the new covenant. 
Remember Jesus telling the woman at the well that there's a time is coming and it's now here where whether it's on this mountain or that mountain doesn't matter. The Lord is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. But back when this psalm is written, there was a very real sense in which there is a street address, if you will, where God's glory especially dwells, the Lord's house. And he's just delighting to be there, to be so close to the Lord. His heart is overflowing. He says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Sing for joy is a little weak, fitting more with the crying out and the longing and fainting. This is crying out. This is just desire that is so strong. This person's just crying out for God. And this is a delight and an expectation of being near God and being near his people. Desire and delight in God and his dwelling place. And next we get then in verses um, three to the sparrows and the swallows. And my goodness, there's all sorts of commentators talking about the sparrows represent this, the swallows represent that. I'm gonna give you a principle of Bible interpretation. It's not original with me. When the straightforward sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. Lest, lest you end up with nonsense. I'll say that again. When the straightforward sense makes common sense, seek no other sense, lest you yield nonsense. The temple courtyard is wide open, okay? Um, and so as these sons of Korah are walking around performing their duties, surely they are seeing birds' nests and swallows and sparrows. It, it, it just means what it says. And the thought is this. How lovely is God's house that even these insignificant little birds can dwell near God. And then by implication, how much more are we welcomed in? It's a picture of being welcoming. Our great God, as much as he is holy, and as much as we dare not approach him irreverently, sinfully, he, in he invites us to come. He invites us to come. That that's the picture of sparrows and swallows. I'm sure you remember in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Sparrows is insignificant, forgettable, unimportant bird, and yet the living God is pleased to let them nest near him, to rear their young near him. How much more... Should his people in whom he delights, his people whom he redeemed, his people whom he calls sons and daughters, how much more should they be welcome? And so he's just exulting and rejoicing in this. And of course, the purpose of drawing near, he says, is that they may ever sing his praise. Because this now we get to that first blessed or blessednesses. And so having thought about the Lord's house and thought about the, the way that he welcomes the, the meek and the humble, he extols, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. You know, it, it's truly remarkable. Um, no one is too small. No one is too little. No one is too frail to approach God. Sadly, far too many are too great, too powerful, too wise. Let me just read a couple passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. I, some of these phrases just get me. Where does God, he lives in eternity. Like, what's his street address? Eternity. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what the Lord says. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who's a, of a contrite and lowly spirit, 
to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite. And you could also add in among sparrows, the swallows. You know, you're, you're invited. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he meant it. And so the psalmist here is drawing attention to the invitedness, the, the welcome for those who come humbly before the living God. And he extols the blessedness of those who can dwell and remain. Not all Israelites could permanently be dwelling before the Lord. But these sons of Kor that were in day in and day out in the temple. And so they had this remarkable privilege of just ever being that close to the Lord. And rather than that familiarity breeding contempt, rather than that constant closeness yielding a sort of indifference, it creates, lifts, elevates their desire. So they're walking about just desiring and fainting and crying out for God. And so they extol the blessedness of those who dwell with God. And then we move to the second stanza. The blessedness of desiring. The blessedness of desiring. And so in our first stanza, we, we, we contemplated those who day in and day out are near God. Those who day in and day out are dwelling near God's presence. In the second stanza, their thought turns to those who cannot be so close. Those who are at a distance. And so here the, the blessedness is for those who desire to be near God. Those who want to be near God. Those who long to be near God. Let's read this stanza. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. And, and so the blessedness here, this, this overwhelming joy, first is with those who are perpetually with God. Now it's to those who want to be with God. A heart strengthened and longing for God. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. That notion of strength is security. And, and back then and now, there are so many things that offer security. In the Old Testament, there was the warning about putting your trust or your strength in horses or chariots, or military alliances. Today, it could be in you know, retirement funds or insurance policies or whatever that offers to save us, that offers to deliver us. They're all God replacements. God replacements always promise to protect and to deliver and to guard, and they fail. But blessed here, this, this happy, it's the one whose strength, whose trust is in God. And even at a distance, even far removed, that's where their strength is. And in their heart, and this is just a very picturesque way of saying it, are the highways designed, which is to say in their heart, they're just thinking of returning. And again, this, this duty commanded in Deuteronomy 16 doesn't remain a duty for these people. It's not, oh man, is it that time of the year again? I gotta go to Jerusalem. Who's gonna watch the flock? Who's gonna tend the soil? Oh man, that's a long walk. No, rather, blessed are these people who are just, they're looking at the calendar. It's almost time. It's almost time. It's time to go be near God. It's time to make the pilgrimage. It's time to go be with God's people to celebrate the feast. And this is this blessing for that heart that desires to be near God. And as a result of this desire, these people are sustained and refreshed. The word baka there is weeping. So they go through the Valley of Tears. You know, if you're living in the out regions of Israel, it could be a long walk over many days or even weeks. 
and you're going to go through some dry and arid places. And yet, because of their desire and because of their joy, as they go through these difficult terrains, their celebration and their rejoicing actually makes it a place of, of springs. And early rain covers it with pools. It says, though they're in a fertile land, that's how happy they are. You can picture people on this pilgrimage. You can picture a soldier returning home to his family and loved ones. And even though they're, they're traveling through a dry and arid land, to them it's like a garden because they're so excited, they're so happy about where they're going. And what, and what happens is, the nearer they get to their goal, the stronger their desire gets. Um, as they go through the Valley of Bacah, they make it springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, which is to say the further they go, rather than getting more and more tired, they get more and more excited. Now, you know what that's all like, but I saw a very visible picture um, as I got to spend some time with Jim and Meredith as they approached their wedding. And see, the longer they were waiting to get married, rather than it getting less exciting and sort of frustrating and boring, no, as each new day dawned, the excitement rose. And the excitement rose. And finally, you're almost a day away, and it's almost here. And again, rather than sort of, oh man, I've been waiting for this for months, the, the excitement is at a peak if you've ever been waiting to see a blockbuster movie or, or a sports game or anything, you've just been excited, you know what it's like that the closer it gets, actually the more excited you get. And so these pilgrims, as they're approaching Jerusalem, despite the fact that, on the one hand, they have every reason to be tired and weary, they've been walking for days, no, they're closer to Jerusalem, they're closer to the temple, they're closer to the Lord, they're closer to his people, they're closer to worshiping him together. And then there's this wonderful promise that they will be strengthened and satisfied. That all those who have this desire to, to be near God, all those people who in their hearts are the roads to Zion, all of those people who take strength in God, each one appears before God in Zion. That, that, that desire will be satisfied. Or, or another way of saying it is as our Lord said it, knock and it will be opened, seek and you will find, ask and it will be given. If you want God... If you desire to know God, there's nothing that will hinder you. Um, there's, there's no requirement that needs to be met. If you approach through the Son in faith, you can know God. You can have fellowship with God. And so this second blessing now is for desire. So we've seen first the, the joy and the blessednesses of those who are perpetually abiding with God. And then here the blessednesses of those who are maybe far removed, but they desire it. They're moving. They're making progress. They're approaching the Lord. And third, and finally, we see the blessednesses of depending. Of depending. It starts off the prayer for the Lord's anointed. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O Lord, O God of Jacob, Salah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. And so... The, the sons of Korah are first considering their great privilege in ministering and, and even doing humble tasks near the presence of the Lord. Then their heart turns to the, the blessedness of those on pilgrimages, and now their heart turns towards their king. That's the blank, their king. Um, the Lord's anointed is any person who's received the Holy Spirit for a particular task. So in the Old Testament, some priests are called the Lord's anointed, but then especially the king in fact, you'll remember that David refused to, to uh, strike down Saul. How dare he, he said, raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. And of course, that word anointed is the Hebrew word messiah, 
Messiah, which in Greek is Christos or Christ. So anointed Messiah and Christ are English, Hebrew, and Greek for the same thing. And so while this does ultimately become fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the time of writing, surely it just refers to the Davidic king, who is Israel's shield, the Lord working through him. And, and so this son of Korah is, is praying that the Lord would also not forget this Davidic king, this, this recipient of the promises of David, who is the shield for Israel, the protector. And then we see, and, the, and these are probably the most familiar verses in the whole psalm. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. We see that unsurpassable joy defeats all lesser desires. This, this is really key, I think, and often a key component to battling temptation. Unsurpassable joy defeats all lesser desires. You see, as we fight with sin... There's a number of motivations the Bible gives us to battle sin. The Bible gives threats. And they're there. Read Deuteronomy. If you guys, if you guys are unfaithful, I'm going to deport you. I'm going to smash you. And even in the New Testament, there are warnings. I mean, if you go through the book of Hebrews, if you're in Dave Lample's study, you know very well there are warnings. And that can be a motive for why you obey. You know, temptation comes and you fear the living God. And that's a good motivation and yet probably the strongest motivation and the one that will last because I don't think fear fear of God often will sustain us in a battle against temptation but really what you've got to find is a greater desire the way temptation works is temptation promises pleasure and to a certain extent it gives pleasure Tempt sin is kind of like a stick of juicy fruit if you've ever had juicy fruit chewing gum it tastes amazing for about five seconds Right? And then you're stuck with sort of a piece of chewy cardboard in your mouth. But for five seconds, that juicy fruit's amazing. And that's sin. Sin, for a season, has pleasure. And if you're really going to battle and conquer a fight with sin, what you need to get is greater pleasure in God. Only a superior pleasure can, can trample down the lesser pleasures. And so look at the, the satisfaction and the joy. He says, a day in your courts. If you if got to choose... Between spending one day in the outer courts, not even the holy place, just the outer courts of God's temple, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I mean, and just start filling that blank in. Maybe a thousand on vacation um, in California. Maybe a thousand, you know, traveling the world. Let's put them in the scales. Elsewhere. Whatever your elsewhere is, whatever your place you'd like to go is elsewhere. One day in God's courts, a thousand elsewhere. And, and this son of Korah says, oh, it's better. One day is far better. Far better. And he can only say that because of the desire and the joy and the pleasure he gets from being near God. And if you really want to guard yourself against sin, you've got to cultivate that desire and pleasure in God so that when sin comes knocking and says, hey, I've got some pleasure over here, you can respond by saying, a, a day in God's courts is more enjoyable than anything sin can offer. And, and see here, we see humble contentment makes one untemptable. Humble contentment makes one untemptable. Not only is the psalmist say that one day in the outer courts of the temple is better than a thousand elsewhere, he says he'd rather be the doorkeeper, he'd rather be the janitor in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
in whatever high position you've got, I'd rather have the humblest position near God. I'm fine with that. I don't need honor. I don't need recognition. I don't need people to take note of me. I'm happy opening the door. And, and, and you put that up against, you know, an exalted position with wicked people in these tents. And I think the implication is prosperity. He says, no, uh-uh. I'm content, and I'm humble, and I'm happy. You, you think of the Apostle Paul, who in Philippians 3.8 says, I indeed count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's that same logic. The Apostle Paul in this analogy puts in the scales all things. Everything this world has to offer. Popularity, money, wealth, pleasure, property, possessions, achievement, applause, you name it. It's in over here. And knowing Jesus. And he says, in comparison, rubbish. And that's a powerful statement. It's very hard, at least from my heart, to be able to really mean that. But if we want to really battle temptation, if we want to really be solidly secure and untemptable, the real and final and lasting way of dealing with that is to cultivate this type of heart. And there's no wonder the psalmist is saying, this person is blessed because they're satisfied. I mean, our world is built to make you discontent. I mean, understand, that is the goal of every single advertiser who's ever made an advertisement. The goal is to get you walking along content, then you see a billboard, then you see a sign, and you say, my life isn't complete without that new thing. You didn't even know five minutes before your life wasn't complete, but now you know, and now you need it. And so advertising is just one means the world has to create discontentedness within us. And here, this person, hey, you, I'm content. I'll hold the door open for people going in. That's fine. I'd rather have that than be anywhere else. And then in verse 12, oh no, sorry, verse 11, delighting in who God is and the grace he gives. He says, for the Lord God is a sun and the shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And here it becomes clear, just in case anyone was wondering, that he's not primarily excited about the temple because of the architecture. But it's because who lives in the temple, right? It's not just, man, you've got to see the temple. It is impressive. It is majestic. It is, or it was. But that's, that's not why he's excited about God's courts. That's not why he's excited about Mount Zion. He's excited because the Lord God lives there. And then he starts meditating on who God is. The Lord God is a sun and a shield, which speaks to provision. The sun giving light and life and a shield protecting. The Lord is the life giver, the light giver. He is the protector. Who God is. And then what he does, the Lord bestows favor and honor which the Hebrew speaks to grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so he's just exulting in, depending on who God is and what he does. And then the psalm ends with probably the greatest blessing of all. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So we've seen the blessing of dwelling, the blessing of desiring, and here the blessing of depending you know, and for all the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, for all the differences of how we worship God, one thing that remains is the true blessedness, the true 
glory comes from trusting in, which is just another word for faith, God. It's not, it doesn't say blessed is the one who does good things for you, or blessed is the one who offers the right sacrifices. Blessed, rather, is the one who trusts in you. And that hasn't changed. You know, the altars, the animals, and the buildings, and the fires, and the incense, they've changed. And again, if you go to Dave Lample's ABF, you'll have some understanding of why and how they've changed. But what hasn't remained is that God is looking for people to come to him humbly by faith. In the new covenant, it's even more explicit as the message of the gospel goes out. You know, that, that we were all born estranged from God, sinners. The Lord God sent his son, Jesus, who lived the life we could not live. He died on a cross, rose on the third day for our sins. And by trusting in him, we have that blessing of forgiveness. And by trusting in him, we have that blessing of nearness to God. By trusting in him, we become sons and daughters. That is the, the true greatest blessing, and without which the other ones in this psalm would make no sense. Because if, if you're not trusting in God, you really don't want to be near him. Because if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you are alienated, and God is your enemy. You don't, you don't want to be near God. You don't want to be dwelling with God. And, and if, you're not, if you're not forgiven, you don't, you don't want to chart a path to get to him. So in one sense, the blessings sort of work backwards. Blessed is the one who's trusting by faith in God. Blessed is the one whose heart wants to draw near God. And blessed is the one who, upon drawing near, remains and abides. Now let's just take a few minutes to try to translate this now. What does this mean for us in the new covenant? Um, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 3, I think we'll make some, some sense of this. It's too often, I think, people without even thinking about it assume the building is the new temple. And, and we have words that convey that notion, like this is the sanctuary, which is fine by meaning this is the room we set apart for worship of God, but the, the room's nothing, nothing special. There's no reason why the gym couldn't be the sanctuary or we could swap it around. Um, this is the room we've set apart for, for prayer and worship. But in the new covenant, um, something takes the place of the temple. In the New Covenant, something takes the place of the temple. In 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 16. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building on it. So Paul's talking about his apostolic ministry and church planting at Corinth as building something, a building, a foundation. And now Apollos, in Paul's stead, is continuing to build on that foundation. And he says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as through fire. So after this whole talk about how Paul focuses on building this thing, what is this thing he's building? Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, the use there are plural. You all. Y'all. Y'all are God's temple. And so the Apostle Paul is just fixated and focused on serving and building and beautifying God's temple, which is his people. Now, sure, in 1 Corinthians 6, individually we are all also temples or 
where Paul warns against sexual morality, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here, we're the temple. Why? Because the notion of temple is temple is where man and God meet and sin is dealt with. And so when Jesus was walking around on earth in John 3, he cries out and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up because Jesus is where God and man meet and sin is dealt with. But in Jesus' absence, who are the people given the gospel message? Who are the people called upon to be ambassadors to bring that message to the world? Well, his people, the church are. And so we become the place where God and men meet and we become the place where sin is dealt with. And God's spirit, localized presence abides with us. So what does this mean then? I think, I think it extols and a blessedness on those who are passionate about gathering together with God's people, passionate about gathering together to worship, who long to do that, who don't view it as a duty, who don't view it as a chore, but rather as a delight. Because right now, in this room, you all, you all, and we all, are where God has chosen to dwell. And we are his temple. And so this same desire to be near God can be translated to being near God's people, to being, to gather together as the church. In closing, could you just turn to Hebrews chapter 4? We're going to look at three brief passages in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews does such a wonderful job of translating for us into the new covenant, what all this temple language becomes for us. So we're going to look at three passages in Hebrews, and then we'll be done. So in Hebrews chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And look at this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now that should be jaw-dropping. Now this psalm extols God's courts, the outer courts. Where, where was the mercy seat? It was on top of the ark. Where was the ark? It was in the Holy of Holies, which was inside of the holy place, which was inside of the temple. So, from the argument from the lesser to the greater, Psalm 84 is extolling the glory and the dignity of being a gatekeeper in the courts. And here, you and I get told to boldly enter the throne of grace, the Holy of Holies, because Jesus himself has gone ahead and we are told to come in. And that should make our jaw drop with the privilege. And that's not all. Go to chapter 10. Making this even more explicit. And here, this notion of entering the holy place is linked with corporate worship. It's linked with gathering together. When we gather together as God's people... Something special happens. It's hard to put words on it. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 speaks about how when you gather together and the power of our Lord is present with you and I'm with you in spirit, and there's something different about worshiping God together that doesn't happen when we worship God on our own. There's something about assembling as his church, as his bride. And so in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain 
That is his flesh. So that's the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. We can enter. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. Um, and, and so it starts with a, a sincere faith, and it starts with a forgiven heart and a clean conscience, and it leads to this drawing near and this encouraging one another and this not forsaking the assembling together. They're all intertwined. And so you, you take the joy and the excitement of Psalm 84 and you translate it in the New Covenant into this, into this. And finally, Hebrews chapter 12. Because there's a tremendous danger that what is familiar grows comfortable. When the exact opposite should happen, these gatekeepers are growing in their awe and their estimation of the privilege of drawing near God. And, and they would be in awe of our privilege. I mean, you can just imagine one of these gatekeepers who wrote this psalm hearing that in the future there would be people who by faith could enter into the very Holy of Holies constantly with no one kicking them out. I mean, even the high priest only went in once a year and he got out of there fast. Jesus tore the, temp the curtain in two, went in, sat down, and told all of us to come in after him. And so again, making this, this connection from the old covenant to the new covenant, Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. And the writer of Hebrews is again instructing and warning his readers not to underestimate what they are doing. Because we need to have eyes of faith. The beauty of a temple is you get to see a temple. The beauty of Shekinah glory is you see Shekinah glory. So you know what you're doing is holy. You know what you're doing is serious business. Yet the writer of Hebrews says, despite the fact that those things are no longer visible because they are shadows, what we're doing is far more serious and far more privileged and therefore, we need to be careful, in a sense. He says in verse 18, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. Quote, If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What he's comparing is when Israel went to Mount Sinai to enter into the Old Covenant. And the Lord God came down and the earth shook and there was lightning and darkness and the people were just terrified. And they said, we don't want to go anywhere near that mountain. Moses, you go for us. And he said, you haven't approached that. And you, you can picture the reader going, phew, okay, good, because that'd be scary. No, we've approached something even more awesome. But you have now come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So if those Israelites were scared, 
and taking things seriously, when they approach Sinai, he says, <laughs> that's nothing. Because when we come together as God's church, when we come together as his bride, and we draw near God, we're, we're approaching the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, and the company of angels, the living God and the firstborn. So, so we have far greater privilege, and we have far greater responsibility and honor and so if that is true for a gatekeeper, how much more should that desire to dwell, to, to be near God, and to trust in faith be true for us? And we've, see, we've seen this blessing, and, and we, we're all on a quest for joy. We're all on a quest for satisfaction. And Psalm 84 tells us where to find it. We find it first by putting our faith and trust in the living God, by cultivating a heart that even when we're far from him, wants to get back, wants to approach and then when we're there, remains and abides and dwells with God. That, that, despite what the advertisers tell you, that is where true blessedness and overflowing joy is found. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that even the sparrows and the swallows can nest near you, Lord, and that you're pleased to call such as us your sons and daughters. Lord, I just pray that we would be trusting in you that we would be desiring to be near you. And Lord, that we would abide with you. Lord God, increase your word. Increase our faith. Glorify yourself in our midst. Unite our hearts to fear your name and cultivate within us a satisfying desire for you. In Jesus' name, amen.